Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by TechTables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events. We offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. Today we have Matthew Hall, CIO at the University of Central Florida. Matthew, welcome to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. Joe, thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked that we could make this happen. For those in the audience who don't know, Matthew used to work at UCSB. And for those of you who aren't familiar, I live in Santa Barbara, so UC Santa Barbara. And my grandfather taught there for 50 years, so I've been on that campus quite a bit in beautiful Santa Barbara. Matthew, for those in the audience who don't know you yet, let's just kick off with your background and where you are today. Now, a quick word from one of our brand partners. Nagar was a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagar offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desks, cybersecurity, and more. Check out Nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-O.com. I'm a Florida native, so I've been around the country. I've had a great opportunity and a wonderful life. I've been thoroughly blessed. Went to the, the higher education and K through 12 here in Florida. So I went from community college as a transfer student, a first generation college student to Manatee Community College, to the University of South Florida, to Florida State. And I, then I spent 13 years in the investment banking industry, all the world doing mergers and acquisitions for what is now known as Bank of America. So my California affinity got started when I was doing acquisitions for NCNB Nations Bank when we took over the Bank of America franchise out of San Francisco. So I spent a lot of time in L.A. and San Francisco doing mergers and acquisitions due diligence, and I fell in love with California. And you fast forward after the investment banking days, I spent a lot of time in New York, and I was tired of traveling around the world. So I was traveling around the world where I was gone four weeks a month. I, I, I realized one day when I woke up on an airplane, American Airlines flight from Charlotte, I knew the flight crew so well. Joe, they were talking about the kids, the dental problems. I think I knew my flight crew on the U- on US Air and American Airlines better than I knew my family at that point. So I said, I had enough. Vanderbilt University reached out and then we, I had a recruitment. That's how I got from investment banking to higher ed. And I went to Vanderbilt University. Then I've been employed at Microsoft, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, even did time at Toyota for Microsoft up in Georgetown, Kentucky in the Camry plant. So I've had a wonderfully broad things that included oil and gas, law enforcement, security. It's been a great run and it only gets brought to you through information technology when you have that kind of exciting access to opportunity. Yeah, I love that. And if you're not as smart as the folks like Matthew Hall are, you can start a podcast like me and and then you can travel around, just interview all the smart people, which is great. I actually, I don't know if I'm there yet as far as the, the amount of travel. I do travel quite a bit and I'm going to fly to Tallahassee tomorrow morning. But I've been to the Austin airport so many times. The lady at the taco stand knows who I am and that she knows I want she a pineapple. She knows you order your travel too much. Yeah, yeah. She knows I want the pineapple Austin East Ciders, which is like my all-time favorite hard cider. And anyways, I don't know if I'm that bad, but yeah, the Austin flight's not as terrible. So anyways, all that said, let's open up with the emergence of the CIO as the organizational problem solver. I really like this topic. During your time at Bank of America, you were a senior vice president, and you had mentioned our intro call, which I loved, 
you're a business technology executive, not a technician. How has that experience helped shape how you look at IT as a business today? I've been on both sides of the fence. I came up through IT when I was, I gave you my history around my academic training. And I, when I was at Manatee Community College, I was an IBM field engineer. I went to, I was co-curricular doing the study, doing the work. So I was desperately trying to get out of IT and go into other fields. And it just stuck with me because I was in Richardson, Texas. And my boss turned to me and said, we've got to remove Perot systems from this environment. I said, what's a Perot Systems? I was a technician. He goes, we have this contract with Perot where they were running the Richardson Data Center, and you're going to do the business analysis to look at the contract, look at the training, look how Perot's offboarding people, and figure out what the economic impact is to Bank of America. It was Nations Bank, their precursor, but it was starting that business function. So I've Don Obert moved me more and more into management track from the technical track, and by the time I finished, the job title was Senior Vice President, Business Technology Executive in the corporate, and it's, it was a big shift, but that, that, that is an important distinction when you're looking at the economics, the finance, the systems integration, and the human factors, including staffing models, it really becomes a holistic enterprise, and it's something that I think very important to have a good, well-rounded education, including the time at the Wharton School, which I, I very well, Bank of America generously subsidized the Wharton School training. Boy, did we put problem solving to work in that bank. Acquisition after acquisition after acquisition. Yeah, no, that I love what you said about the economic impact. And I think because a lot of folks think it can be a tech, there's such a technology component, but you've got to make the business case in order to get the transformation dollars that you want. And then there's got to be an ROI attached to that. And if you don't have the ROI, it's a tough, it's a tough sell. So I love that. How are organizations successfully implementing these strategies or from, because you've got such a great portfolio or great background of all the different organizations you've worked at, how have you seen these strategies when you look about like economic impact and all of that, these strategies to drive better decision-making, if there's a few examples you can share? There's a lot of examples. Right now, I'm working with a professor at the College of Business here at UCF. Dr. Ron Piccolo, he's a renowned, got hundreds of thousands of citations for this fella in leadership. And we're he's the one that formulated UCF strategy. If you go to strategy.ucf.edu, you'll see the president's strategy. And that was a collaborative activity that said, what does UCF, what are the assets you have locally in the community? You think about Santa Barbara, you've got great temperature. You've got a, one of the most beautiful places on earth you're living in. So there's these physical attributes of your location. Orlando area has an interesting thing. It's got a spaceport. It's got the world's busiest airport. 76 million people transmit through that, that airport every year. It has Nona, a medical facility that's just, it's a, just a whole development around medicine, including one of the most modern veterans administration hospitals in the United States. We've got Port Canaveral. So we have a deep water seaport. We have trains. Orlando is this unique metropolitan area that offers unique things. So you think about what does that institution want to do and what does it want to do? We want to lead in research or we want to be in the top 50. We want to be in the AAU. So you have to have aspirations in your goals, but the place you're at can dictate the questions you can ask and answer. Because one of the things that's different between Santa Barbara and UCF is the population. Santa Barbara County was what, 600,000 people. It's a very small population county. You know, look it up for me. In Orlando, we're, we're at several million in the whole broader area. When you go from Miami to Orlando to this whole center, it's just an extraordinarily different context. 
with different attributes and different aspirations. So a metropolitan university has different goals than a University of California system situated in Santa Barbara. So you take that con that strategy context and that positional context and say, what attributes do you have and how do you align IT to those goals? So tr most people never stop and say, what do we want IT to do? Our IT staff, there's about 500 IT staff at UCF, 50% of those are engaged in electronic plumbing. They do network, they do desktops, they do cloud. It's really, it's not, it's not what I consider transformative work. It's critical operations work and necessary work to engage in transformation. But Ron is going to help us facilitate a conversation with our deans, our vice presidents, our president's office, and our provost. How do we align IT to the strategic goals and the strategic concept of UCF? Henry didn't do that at Santa Barbara, but he was he had already arrived in the top 10 universities. He's one of the major AAU players. So those aspirations were met. And we had six Nobel Prize winners at Santa Barbara. So it's just you have to take the context into consideration as to when you formulate your strategy. And if you're a service provider and you're a captive service provider inside of an organization, whether it was Jamie Grant, whom you and I met through, I think one of the local things you did with Jamie here in Central Florida, he had the state of Florida CIO role, which that government role is very different looking at the entire state of Florida versus me and just the Orlando community. You have to contextualize where you're doing and then ask yourself as a service provider, what do I offer to help these folks attain their strategic outcomes? And some people don't do that tie, and that's a very important time to do that when you get into a new job. Yeah, that's, that, that is really great insight. And something offline we had talked about was when you make those contextual arguments or, per, or perspectives, we talked about data-driven data -driven management. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about how you think about that at UCF right now? I think about it wherever, whoever my employer is or my personal life in God we trust all others bring data. That's W. Edwards Deming from sort of the total quality management. I'd say even Reagan S. Trust, your California guy, trust but verify. Is that, yeah, we believe you, but can you actually give us a proof point? So if someone says you're attacking the university, my response, how do you know you're under attack? Is there a root cause analysis? Can you at least, you know, when you look at the types of data you talk about when you're an operations person, you're looking about what's the scope of the assets that I have under my jurisdiction, you know, my management? What are the qualitative attributes of them? And age is a qualitative attributes. Hey, Joe, I need some new equipment. What's the first thing you ask, what we're asking someone who put that to you is how old's the equipment you have and what's malfunctioning about it? And there's a value statement in that question implicitly that says, why can't you use the equipment longer? That microphone is going to die or that microphone, you've got a microphone that may be sufficient to the task. Is there another microphone you want or another piece of equipment you want to better serve your needs in your area? You have to think about asset age. You have to think about the throughput. And one of the one of the issues with technology is it depreciates not only the, the physical life cycle, but it depreciates at an accelerated rate with technical innovations. 802.11 AC versus AX and where we're going with Wi-Fi 6. Wireless density, we in a Santa Barbara is very similar con configuration space-wise to this institution, 15 million gross square feet. Both are pretty comparable. 234 buildings in Santa Barbara, I think it's 258 in UCF. Building penetration for wireless, if you just use traditional Wi-Fi, it only has two antennas. The new APs have three antennas. And then they're going from 5G, from 2.4 gigahertz to 5. Why does that technical jiggery-pokery matter to anybody? Because to get the same area physical coverage and wall penetration, you may need two new assets 
to replace one because of the technology changes. So you have to have the data about the performance of the asset, the qualitative attributes of the asset, and then we have to connect it to what this consumer wants. I had the vice president and president of our student government in today walking him through the massive amount of expenditure and operations we have in IT. We do that every year with the new student government executives because Florida has a very, at least at UCF, is a very vigorous shared governance with the students. And we want them to know about their operations. So we try to bring them into discussion. In these kind of conversations, when I was able to walk them through the amount of data and information and the roadmap to show we're professionally managed, I think the students, the, the president and the vice president, felt more assured that we had a handle on what we were doing for them and what we were doing with their money. So it's also financial and operational transparency meet and those data point intersections, and it adds confidence that we know what we're doing. Can't know where you're going if you don't know where you're going. I love that financial and technological transparency. The nice part about the podcast is, so when I do this podcast, like right now, I will actually take notes because I'm actually processing what you're saying. People are like, Joe, how do you remember everything? It's, I got a notebook literally right here. I'm taking notes. This is how I learned. I'm writing down everything. And then in post-production, I just cut out all the, all the empty space time. So people are like, oh, the conversation just seems like it's so fast. And so I'll probably end up cutting this part out that we're talking about right here. Yeah, I want you <laughs> Anyways, to do editing on my face. I've got the face made for radio, so you got a lot of work here on Photoshop to do. No, you look great. You look great. Also, I need to get a UCF shirt. I need me an, I need me a nice little shirt. And I'm going to get the tour because I go to Orlando. I feel like that's one of it's like a hot destination just because there's so many events there. So I'm going to have to stop by and get a campus tour, which well, I'm next very time excited about. I love it. So I'm talking about something that oh, and you mentioned. Way, you, you, I'm in August, we're doing an FBI security thing in August. We have the FBI and a lot of national security people here. So you may want to hijack some of those FBI guys. FBI event in August. I love it. I'm going to have to learn. I'm going to put that down in my notebook to figure out when that is. Is that, a, is that online? Is that like a behind the scenes type of thing? How do I find out more about that? Well, there'll be a, sort of a security summit with, with the FBI every year here. So they're just, we're just doing, I, I hired our chief information security officer is our former chief of deputy chief of police here at UCFPD, a joint terrorism task force and, and worked for the FBI. I hired a law enforcement official into the CISO role to build that relationship. And we have a very tight relationship with Secret Service. FBI, local law enforcement, trying to make sure that when an event happens, and it's always when, we have massive law enforcement capabilities and contacts to bring to bear. I love that. I'm definitely going to be checking that out. I definitely want to learn more. I was kind of curious, what's different with higher ed, or maybe a few things that are different with higher ed than with maybe Bank of America or some of the other private sector positions? Yeah, I'd love to hear that. There's different areas of higher ed. So if you look at our CFO's office, he deals with $2 billion in cash management every year, money coming and going through the institution. So that those kind of controls are very consistent, business controls that we need to apply to the university's financial operations. But what's different is you look at Bank of America, you come into an office, even if you work remote, you have highly secure systems that are very secure. The facilities are high security. So if you go to the Richmond Data Center, which services the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. And I spent a lot of time in massive security controls, least privilege access, really an extraordinary amount of regulation that you're seeing from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, Securities Exchange Commission. These are guys with guns who, who regulate. I've been in New York where I've watched financial services executive get, get carted off in handcuffs because the government takes these things very seriously. And to that, and I've also been in higher ed where there's research spaces where I've seen personnel hauled off by the FBI in handcuffs too. 
So the security is different in different zones. So that's Bank of America is widely, highly secure, highly controlled, highly locked down. But there are elements of that organization in the investment bank and the boutique trading space that are highly academic, highly intellectually creative and need freedom of movement. So you had to, you had a limited amount of creativity with a massive amount of cons- security in the bank and security is trust for the bank. Now you flip it to higher ed, we have students living on campus. So they have a consumer-like experience where they need to get to the internet and see Netflix and play Xbox. Things you would allow on a network at a university, you don't see an Xbox at Bank of America, but generally you don't. And you have to, these people are living here. They're our guests. So we have to have an IT environment that's like your house. At the same time, we have Department of Defense research, $50 million in Department of Defense research happening at UCF. And so we have to secure that as an enclave on the same network that is largely handling that student population. Our monthly DNS hits for our network, it's a billion a month. A billion times a month, someone's resolving a DNS inquiry. 55 million times a month, times a day, we're turning an attacker away as a consumerization. The bank's a big target, but we pull stuff inside the organization from the consumer space. So we have the difference. We have a hybrid consumer model inside higher education where you want vast amounts of freedom because people are learning and discovering. Whereas the bank has a very controlled set of business process and its basis for ongoing existence is trust. And trust means I can, I'm not going to lose your money to a hacker. We're, we have to be able to have that massive amount of freedom and be secure inside of higher ed. So it's a really a multivariate community. Sorry, Florida allergies are killing me. So I hope your editors are good. My, my editor is my wife. She is she's oh, fantastic. Right. God bless you. <laughs> if she has to edit this. <laughs> she's magical. She's great. So this is, this brings up a fascinating, so vast amounts of data having, and I didn't really think about it like this before, but having, right, having kids, they need the flexibility to be able to access literally everything or mostly everything versus the bank is locking that down. How do you think about the digital landscape and even prioritize security throughout? That seems very tough and multifaceted. How do you think about that? How do you think about the security part in keeping the university safe? It's really not that hard. I think people mystify it. There, There are frameworks, whether it's COVID. I use what we call the NIST cybersecurity framework. And they're really about 147 controls that say, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. We have to identify our assets. What are we securing? So I'm securing the network. I'm securing servers on the network. I'm securing data on the network, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to identify the things you're going to secure. And you've got to talk about a data hygiene process. What's more important? There's a transitive property. A is greater than B is greater than C. And let's say that UCF.edu main website Reputationally, it's very important. If, if the web, but if your data gets out the door, it, we can't bring it back. It's out the door. We have to do a notification. So there's data classification from brochureware to highly confidential and classified information with the government called controlled unclassified information that we have to have custody. So there's different custodial rules for different assets based upon their role. <clears throat> that identify, protect, detect, respond, recover helps you frame it. And if you apply that, whether you're in higher ed, banking, healthcare, the military, wherever, you're going to be able to methodically approach your security. And then you have a risk-based decision. Do we monitor 24 hours a day? Do we do X 24 hours a day? And each of those have a cost and risk equation associated with them. And when you look at a risk model, 
like ISO 31000, you're going to say, here's the risk. Here's the possibility that the risk would occur. Here's the impact of the risk that would occur. And here's the velocity of the risk. So how often? And if you add those sort of things up in a, in a, in a little table, you can start I'm looking at right now, this is Florida, it's lightning. I see lightning strikes. That's a bigger security risk than anything to me, Joe, to tell you the truth. Lightning strikes are gonna be bigger than hackers in some respects. We hit one electrical outlet and you got 50 minutes on the wireless infrastructure. So you have to think different threats, weather, national actors, criminal actors, hacktivists, all sorts of things that you have to do. Yeah, no, that's really great. That's a really great insight. Something that I think it's interesting is the role of the CIO striking a delicate balance between driving innovation, transformation, and then even just the daily operations, the daily operational demands. What are some effective strategies that CIOs who are listening to this can employ to navigate this balancing act? If you got a few examples about maintaining this balance and achieving alignment with the strategic objectives. Know your assets know how much your assets cost, know how much your staff costs. You have to have an engaged workforce, no matter where you are. We've got 500 people. Our number one issue with our engagement surveys is compensation. And in the state of Florida, government, higher education, you're at a, you're at a cost differential advantage to what state payers are willing to pay the labor force versus others. So you, one of the things you do is labor is going to be the key to your success and the engagement levels of your labor is going to be a key as a CIO success, no matter whether you're an operates CIO or a transformative CIO, you need really good people because PowerPoint engineers, and I don't know, I, I know your audience may know this, but I'll say it. You know what CIO stands for, right? It's the uh, almost out of a job acronym. I'm blanking on yeah. it right now. Career is over. That's our joke, yeah, right? Career is over. That's right. Yeah, that's not your almost. You are. Your career is, this is your terminal point. So it's a Peter principle thing. So you're up here trying to coordinate all these people and you need good people who know their local jobs. You need to understand your assets and then you need to show you have a credible operation. So if you were to go to status.ucf.edu or uptime.ucf.edu, that operational and financial transparency we talked about, you're paying a lot of money. Is the network up? Are our systems up? And when they do go down, and by the way, every CIO knows this, and maybe the new ones don't, bad news doesn't age well. You need to communicate. And so when you're running your operations, running an effective operation is your key to higher order value creation. So if you want to be a transformative CIO, you can't have a terrible network and then expect people to credibly believe that you can do some form of business transformation for them magically. It just won't happen. We just completed at Santa Barbara, we completed UC Path and software deployments. We just did another major ERP system. And it's, these are tough systems to deploy in large institutions sociologically. So you have to know the people factors and the technical factors at the same time. And a lot of things come together in one, one confluent event. I love that. So first off, <laughs> career is over is great. I was talking to, there was a state CIO who said the same thing. They're like, Joe, you know what CIO stands for? And I was like, what? They're like, career is over. And they're like, and I, this is not a hint to anyone. I talk to a lot of folks all the time. But and they are still in the job and they'll be in the job for a while. But they were like, this is it. <laughs> I'm like, this, this will be the last gig. So I was cracking up about it. Well, I think it, new- so I maybe got six to 10 years based upon health and disposition. But we, you get a cohort of us in that 55 and plus range. You've got the experience and the energy to do something. But it's a tough job. And there's a lot of forces and a lot of people who don't want to understand, don't care to understand, or don't need to understand. It's just, does my stuff work? And are we moving the ball forward? And if not, I'll get someone else to move it forward for me. 
Yeah, the cultural forces of basic human, no one wants to change or evolve, or I think are always fighting the IT shop, which is a bummer because the world is moving at a faster clip than a lot of folks are, are willing to admit. Actually, there was an article today online, I forget where it was from, but it said that the state CIOs are rushing to regulate generative AI to stop their employees from using it. And I was like, that's not the first action step that I would take is to rush in That's regulation. Right. Backwards, man. I've embraced <laughs> generative AI. I encourage my staff. I have some very, I have some people who take vast amount of times to write very long emails. So I got chat GPT over here. I have chat GPT and Bard pinned to my Microsoft Edge browser and on my, so I've got one of my chat GPT prompts I wrote says, summarize this article in 200, summarize this text in 200 words or less. Give me 10 bullet points for the 10 major bullet points. Do you understand? Yes. Okay. So I put my text in there and it gives me that. So I've got a guy who writes 1500 word emails, cut, paste. I get my 200 word narrative, my drop down. And the first econom econometric study about generative AI came out to be a 14% improvement for people who and I have a yeah. YouTube channel and I do have to do YouTube tags and I have to do YouTube descriptions. I, I do these things where I use the officer down memorial page where I used to be a police officer for many years. And so whenever a cop dies, I do a tribute video to every police officer who falls in the United States. And it's called the ODMP.org. I take that and I have to, I have a workflow now that it used to take me two hours to do those videos. I could get a tax tag title delivered all because of chat GPT and Bard helping me short circuit a lot of manual things that I otherwise like tag generation for YouTube. Dude, yeah. I'm telling you, it, it is, I would not turn away from it. I would embrace it and fully embrace it with a big warm hug. Yeah. I, yeah. The, I have a couple of thoughts on this topic. One is, I think it was the city of New York in January came out very hard and said, we're laying down the law by last month or the month before they made a hard right pivot and said we're gonna we're now gonna move to to embrace this we have a child my daughter has a childhood friend she has dyslexia and i was coming up with a solution for her because she's like having a hard time taking notes in class smart girl just it's just a different it's just she struggles with that and we were putting stuff where we can record the teacher and then take the transcript from that and then use chat gpt to come up with summary of notes and all kinds of stuff like everything in life, someone will always figure out how to take advantage of it in a bad way. There are always bad actors. Yes, yep. I hear you. Audience, I hear you. I'm a very optimistic person. So I want to come up with a solution and I want to come up with, and for our business, it is the podcast business radically transformed, radically. What took us hours to do is now getting done in 15 minutes and it's a fast world. So you got to figure out, hey, the world's changing. We got to embrace it. And, and I work with high school. I talk about all the time. I coach high school basketball. I will tell you these kids, if you come up with something like restricting a kid, they're just going to find a way around it. Like you need to go hang out with kids more. If you're an adult, they will figure out a way to go use chat GPT to help them. So let's work with them. Let's figure out solutions. Let's figure out, Hey, what's the purpose of school? So it just brings up these deeper questions and, and I love it. So I'm a big fan and I think initially it can be a little scary. And so that's why I think that's the gut. Also, you can remember the media 
for clickbait tends to hype it, tends to put really asinine things oh, yeah. in AI. I understand where he's coming from in many respects, but where we are right now in the evolution of it, it's you should embrace it, you should learn it, you should understand it. And if you haven't tried it, you need to try it or not talk about it because it's like driving a car. We can talk intellectually about driving a car, but until you get on the highway in Florida on I-4 or in Austin and I-35 and or the loop around Austin or somewhere in San Jose, or you go down the 101 at certain points and around Santa Barbara, you know this, when you get to, to CARP and you start going towards Ventura, what a nightmare that is. Talking about it's one thing, sitting in that traffic or better yet, do a lane split on the 101 through Carpinteria all the way to Ventura and watch my wife freak out of the back of my Harley. She did that. And you can talk about it, doing it. Stuff. Then I'll have more credibility if you've actually done it. Because I hear a lot of people talking about these technologies having never touched them and don't understand yeah. it because they don't have the context for it. Yeah, it's a great point. You've got to get your hands on the technology and just start experimenting in little things. And it, it, there was a, I think there was a, there was like a tweet or something where it was like, AI is not going to replace a human but AI is going to replace the person who doesn't use AI. And it's such a good, it's literally going to supercharge everything you're doing, yeah. whether that's if summarizing. You, if you're without it, you're slower. If you're a podcaster and you're not using this for your basic workflow, you're going to be slower to market and you're going to put more effort in than someone who's using it. Yeah. We're going to come out soon. We've got so much content. My problem is in the public sector, it takes agencies longer to approve episodes than I can record and edit and and then use ChatGPT to pull information out. We're moving so quick right now. It's awesome. I love it. And we love shipping content and telling stories and sharing information. And honestly, the hope is like people listen to this episode and there's other CIOs out there that are like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get my hands on it. I know I'm up here, but I want to start making sure I'm using the technology, being aware of just, hey, what's going on in the world? And because the next leaders that will come up are using all of this technology. <laughs> They're just advantage. My provost, I did a deep, I used DID and I did a deep fake of him. We were doing an AI conference at Dr. Phillips Center in downtown Orlando for our College of Arts and Humanities. And we're called UCF Celebrates the Arts and the Reality of Artificial Intelligence. We did it a few months ago. And I did this thing where we did generative art with Midjourney, where my wife, as cancer survivor, she did a sort of a book of oncology for children and told a story with generative artwork and comic creator. I did some things where I was doing Midjourney. I'm down with a group of people at Dr. Phillips, and his family comes in, and I'm demoing Midjourney. And I'd love to show you the art because it's very powerful. And I'll send a copy of it to you on the email so you can see it. But her son was a designer at Disney doing, I think it's called like Young Jedi Academy or something. I've lost track of it, but it's like Jedi's for kids. And, I, and he's an artist. He does a lot of the animated treatments. So I typed in Pixar-like art for Jedi's, Yoda, whatever. I don't remember, some Star Wars-y thing. And it was generating him. She goes, it did it in 30 or 40 seconds. She was like, oh my God, that takes my son seven to 10 hours to do one of those. Then it's concept art. It's co-creation. It's not that you're going to take that, but when you have that idea as a designer... You have that idea as a photographer. When I show you some of the things I can do in Midjourney, it's mind-boggling. These generative adversarial networks or stable diffusion models, people don't understand it. We're getting ready to the point where we write me a first-person shooter video game like X, and it's and they'll write the code. And if you're not in it, you're really behind the power curve right now. Totally behind the power curve. Yeah, yeah, it's moving fast. It's going to supercharge you, I and mean, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. And I always love seeing all of the new possibilities that are coming out, whether those are images or videos or you name it, 
it's definitely a fun time to be to be in the tech space. So as we wrap up, always love to highlight and brag about teams. Curious if there's one to two wins that you love to share or spotlight about what you're working at at UCF. We just deployed Workday HCM in finance here, which is an extraordinary accomplishment. That's a year and a half in the making. So being able to deploy a new financial model and a new human resources model using Workday for a $2 billion a year organization and 14,000 employees is pretty substantial. We're working on assessing our student systems and we're working on digesting $38 million deploying new network infrastructure, moving things to the cloud. We're moving 900 servers to Microsoft Azure. I think I can go on and on. We've just got a marvelous labor force, tremendous group of people who are very committed to the University of Central Florida's success. And having somebody ask me, I don't remember what the context was, one of these type of conversations, what's the most important attribute? It's our labor force. It's our incumbent people who have been loyal to this and their commitment to, to keeping themselves modernized and a skill moving the University of Central Florida and its community forward. It's really a powerful thing. So just a great group of people here. We're doing a lot. More than I can mention, I have one example I'll tell you. We took, we're taking 400,000 emails and consolidating them to another, to our core tenant. So we have our, we have hundreds of thousands of alum in this university. So we had like over 400,000 identities in our nights.ucf.edu mail into one tenant part of our overall technology rationalization program. That's going to allow students and faculty to co-create and collaborate to, to, together. But it creates a lot of policy issues. And I, what we've done as a team is we've talked through what are the unintended consequences? What if we do this? What happens? Faculty senates engaged, students engaged, administrators are engaged. Everybody wants to pull in the right direction to have a positive outcome for everybody affiliated with UCS. It's really nice to see the culture that they're very forward-leaning and aspirational. I love that. Love, love campus, love colleges, love high schools, love spending time. I love hearing from the kids who played in high school and came back or in college. Keeps you young. Always love to hear what they're thinking about. And I love the conversation that we had today. Matthew, next two to three CIOs or tech leaders that you love to hear next on the podcast. Anyone come to mind that you love to hear? I think about that. I've got events, Kellen in San Diego, UC San Diego right near your neck of the woods. And you think about the major disruptive transformative economic sectors, oil and gas, photovoltaic, different energy sources, electric vehicles, those sort of things is that there's higher ed. There's also deans. What's business school look like in higher ed education? And people would understand there's a relevancy conversation. Is higher ed a good investment for my children or a good investment as an adult learner? You have alternatives from traditional liberal arts education that you could go into more of a Botech program. Go to Nashville Diesel College and make a very good living as a diesel mechanic. We have a, we have an immense trades deficit right now. So talk to people who are in the facilities industry. How are they training new people? How do you get new plumbers? We always talk about this AI high-level stuff. Where the rubber meets the road is electricians, carpenters, roofers, general contractors, car mechanics. These are the people who keep the wheels on the bus of society. How are we training and sending people to go into those areas? That's actually pretty sexy stuff when you realize the amount of simulations that are being brought to bear for in facilities. Working on high-voltage electrical lines, especially all the stuff, all the trouble we had with electricity in Santa Barbara and Santa Barbara County. Every time there's a fire or a mudslide, there goes the power, right? Yeah. PG&E, they got to recruit people. I know those people will be very interested in that sort of conversation with a guy like you. 
Yeah, the anytime there is a mudslide or a fire in Santa Barbara, we will not be virtually podcasting this. All of the electricity just goes out <laughs> in the city. It is down for a while. God bless PG, and they've got that's a very there is no IT without the electrical grid in the state of California. Yep. That's 100%. Matthew, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting in person at some point soon. Thanks for the opportunity and to talk to your to your listeners. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from techtables.com. And you're listening to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. 